Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of Sickles at Gettysburg, James Hessler. James Hessler, author of Sickles at Gettysburg. When you were putting this book together, did you find yourself coming across things about Sickles that might have taken you off on a tangent that had nothing to do with Gettysburg? Well, that's a good question. Yes and no, because one of the one of the main theses of my book was that I wanted to focus on things specific to Gettysburg, um, whether that was things that he did during the battle or after the battle, but always kind of with the central premise of Gettysburg. But of course, with a guy like Sickles, who did so many things during his life, that danger of going off on these tangents certainly existed. That book, that book easily could have been 600, 700, 800 pages if you know I, I wanted to cover everything about him that I found interesting. And certainly, for example, the murder trial at the beginning of the book, that was a good example where I could have gone off on a lot of tangents, but I tried to stay focused on you know some of the some of the more important aspects of it, and then ultimately the aspects of it that drove him into the army, which ultimately took him to Gettysburg. Well, for viewers who don't know the story about Sickles, I heard you talk about the murder trial. I, we have to talk about that before we get to Gettysburg. What murder trial? Right. Well, so, so one of the great, one of the great, um, one of the great aspects of the Sickles story is that, you know, his, his, his Civil War career, if you will, really kind of gets underway because in the late 1850s, while he was uh, in Washington serving as a congressman, uh, Mrs. Sickles, his young wife, was cheating on him. And probably many of the viewers know the basics of the story. Uh, she was having an affair with Philip Barton Key, who was the son of Francis Scott Key. Um, well, anyways, one day Congressman Sickles found out about the uh, affair and in kind of an emotional panic, grabbed a couple of guns, confronted Mr. Key, on the streets of Washington right in front of the White House and shot him dead. And in a lot of ways, that's really where my book starts. And I always tell people, you know, how many other Civil War books could you read that would actually start off with, you know, murder, adultery, and, you know, that sort of scandal. But that's kind of where the book kind of kicks off. He married his wife when she was 16 and pregnant, and he was 39? Uh, th early 30s, yeah, I think probably around 32, 33. And he was a member of Congress, and he just walked up to a guy on the street and shot him dead? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that, that was it. So if you, if, if you have any familiarity with Washington, D.C., um, the Sickles has lived on um, basically what's Lafayette Square right across from the White House. Sickles was a protege of, at the time, President Buchanan. So, you know, they lived in a very prominent uh, part of town. Key on a warm Sunday afternoon in February of 1859, Key was basically hanging out in front of the Sickles house, waiting for Mrs. Sickles to, you know, more or less come out and play. Uh, Sickles looked out the window, saw this, and, you know, kind of the rest is history. Went out and confronted Key right on the street, you know, shot him dead. And the trial? The trial. Well, so there was a, um, there was a, you know, by the standards of the time, there was a very sensational 
murder trial. Now, I'm a battlefield guide at Gettysburg National Military Park. One of the uh, uh, kind of cheap, easy jokes you can make on your tours is you can kind of refer to Dan Sickles as the O.J. Simpson of that era because the Sickles trial really was kind of the O.J. trial of that era. Um, you know, again, it had all these scandalous aspects that were going to appeal to people. So you had this, you had this great, highly covered, highly covered uh, murder trial, Sickles kind of assembled, you know, for lack of a better word, this legal dream team, and this legal dream team came up with what's, you know, been best remembered as the uh, first successful temporary insanity defense ever used in United States history. So he was not guilty? He was found not guilty. He was found not guilty by uh, reason of, again, quote-unquote, temporary insanity. One of the points that I make in the book is, though, if you go back and if you look at the press coverage from the trial and the press coverage after the trial, first of all, public opinion was resoundingly in Sickles' favor. You know, Key, the adulterer, was viewed as the bad guy. And they really had a hard time finding an impartial jury because the idea was that people, you know, as they were going into jury selection, people were saying that they really favored Sickles, you know, thought he got what he deserved. So even though, even though it is best remembered for this temporary insanity defense, in reality, he got off because the jury thought that, you know, he did the right thing, protecting his wife, who was, you know, at that time viewed as his, you know, property. And then he reconciled with his wife. Yes, he did. So that's, that's you know, another one of these uh, kind of head-scratching moments in the uh, Dan Sickles story shortly at, within only a few months of the verdict. Uh, Sickles and his wife reconciled. And it was really at that point that public opinion, which, as we said, had been in his favor, then turned against him. And people start to say, well, now, wait a minute. You know, if you can forgive your wife, you know, if you can kind of forgive this damaged woman, how, you know, why is it that you couldn't forgive Key? And at that point, that, you know, public opinion then really started to turn against Sickles. So it's kind of interesting to see, you know, what the, uh, what the moral temperament of the era was in terms of, you know, which is worse, murder, adultery, or forgiving your wife after she's cheated on you. You also quote a, a biographer of Sickles in here as uh, having evidence that Sickles' wife had an affair with Buchanan, James Buchanan. Well, yeah, and, and I would um, um, I'd, I'd use the term evidence with a grain of salt. So one of the um, one of the sources that I referred to in here was the research notes of one of Sickles' first biographers, a guy by the name of Edgecombe Pynchon, who had written a Sickles biography in the 1940s. Um, I'm not a big fan of Pynchon's book, but his research notes are, from, fortunately for us, his research notes are fantastic, because one of the things he did was he still had access to people who knew Sickles in life, you know, and he was able, him and his researchers were able to interview them and, and kind of get their thoughts. But one of the comments that they had made, which again, I, I'm not sure if I believe, but they made the comment that, yeah, they thought to read Sickles and Buchanan did have an affair at one point and that Sickles more or less kind of worked it for you know to advance his own career so believe it or not. Well Sickles had a, a apparently a checkered career going into uh, up to this point in the murder because you quote when he arrived in Washington he arranged he tried to arrange to get somebody fired so a friend of his could get a job and uh, was attacked by that person at the Willard Hotel in Washington who began to whip him. Right. And then the attacker published a note in a New York paper claiming Sickles' whole career has been a series of unparalleled debaucheries. Graduating from the worst stinks of iniquity in this city, he has led the life of a professional vagabond in debt to everyone. He stands before the public a disgraced and vanquished man. Yeah, pretty much. 
pretty much sounds like your typical elected official, right? <laughs> well, yeah, he was elected right? to Congress, too. Yeah, well, that, you know, he was, so, you know, if you think about the era, he, he really graduated, you know, from New York's Tammany Hall politics. Now, what was Tammany Hall, people well, who don't know? T Tammany Hall was kind of, you know, this uh, political, democratic political machine um, in New York City. I mean, it's best known today, you know, for boss tweed and images of corruption um, and that sort of thing. But, you know, Sickles had, had kind of graduated from, from that sort of life. And and, you know, the campaigning and the politics of that era was, you know, probably much more violent and, you know, more politically incorrect than, you know, what, what we would expect today. In fact, you, you quote a New, New York diarist, George Templeton, as saying, one might as well try to spoil a rotten egg as damage Dan's character. Yeah, in another quote, um, Templeton Strong in another quote also refers to Dan as fetid gas. You know what I mean? So... Um, you, you know, it, it's fun. The, the funny thing with Sickles is, is you can find, you can find examples of that where contemporaries just hate his guts. But you can also find a lot of people who obviously at some level must have thought very highly of him during his lifetime, you know, for him to, to go through the law profession and to go through politics and of course the army and diplomatic service and all of this stuff. He's got a really long and varied career. So one of the things that really fascinated me about him was that you could have these two extremes. You know, how could a guy who's, you know, you know, fetid gas also be elected to public office and rise to a high rank in the army and go back to Congress after the war and, and do all this stuff? that he did and that was those are some of the aspects that really interested me about him and you know hopefully as interesting readers too well he was also an, a, a civil war officer on the union side but you say in congress he tended to vote with the southern democrats yeah well well sickles sickles was a democrat and um you know for for folks at home you know the civil war the Civil War, in a lot of ways, you know, if you want to break it down, could be broken down as a war versus Republicans. Abraham Lincoln, Republican in the North, versus a lot of the leading Democrats of the South, um, you know, who, who were, in fact, Democrats. So what happens is, you know, initially before the war, Sickles is a Democrat. He's going to vote with his party. But ultimately, and this is one of the things that I, I like about Sickles and I think is an admirable trait, ultimately Sickles is, you know, I do think his heart really is in, in the union cause. So when Is or is not? Is, is in the union cause. So when the, um, when the Southerners secede and the Civil War starts, you know, a lot of that initial party support that Sickles would have had for the Democrats before the war. Now, obviously, that turns into anger against a lot of these Democrats who have gone to the South, you know, and he feels have kind of put his party in, in danger. How did he end up in the Army? Well, that's, you know, that's a long story. But, but he, um, so, you know, as we touched on earlier, he um, takes his wife back. His public opinion, you know, ratings shoot to the bottom. He doesn't run for re-election. So basically when the Civil War starts, Sickles is now out of Congress and back home in New York practicing law as a private citizen. Now there's a cup, there's a lot of different variations on what happens next. And again, like a lot of what you see when trying to analyze these these historical accounts is you gotta kinda, you know, pay your admission and decide which one you're gonna pick to believe and which one you're not gonna believe. But the basic premise is he goes back to New York and he decides to raise troops from his home state of New York. He raises troops, what eventually becomes known as the Excelsior Brigade. Um, and then again, and this is where the roads you know, get a little muddied as far as what happens next. But at some point, he seems to enlist the support of Abraham Lincoln, 
who, you know, likes Sickles' initiative and also Lincoln, you know, starting up kind of this unpopular war effort, Lincoln needs the support of Democrats. Even a disgraced and, you know, sullied one like Dan Sickles is better than no support at all. So, you know, you know, for lack of a better word, you know, Lincoln and Sickles kind of get into bed and mutually support each other. And, um, you know, that's ultimately going to help Sickles get into the Army and rise through the, uh, through the ranks. Did he raise the Army before he was in the army? I mean, did it raise the, the troops? Yeah, yeah, you know, so. How do you do that? Well, you know, in the Civil War, you know, especially in the early days, you know, there's the call for volunteers. It's a volunteer army. He sees an opportunity where if he goes out and, you know, he can, in fact, raise troops, you know, typically, you know, if you're going to if you're going to command a brigade of troops, you might expect that, you know, you're ultimately going to become commissioned as at least a one-star general. So, you know, that that's kind of the nature of the Civil War, at least again in the early stages, volunteers raising troops. So he could show up to the army and say, "Here, I have so many soldiers who have signed up with me, make me an officer. In, in essence, yeah, but what happens, but what happens is, you know, as he starts raising troops, old political opponents of his, and this is where you have to wonder if they're either questioning his lack of military qualification, his reputation, or, you know, some aspect of his, you know, political positions. But at that point, political opponents do kind of start saying, well, time out, you know, stop the presses, you know, we don't, we don't need the Excelsior Brigade brought into service. And there are efforts to actually try to stop his efforts and disband the brigade. Um, that's a good example, again, where he has to go to Washington and tell Lincoln, look, President Lincoln, you need troops. I'm here. I got troops. You know, let's kind of get together and make the deal happen. Ultimately, then, when it comes time for, you know, the Senate and that to, to um, confirm his nomination as a general, um, in a couple of instances, it will get held up and not get, and almost not get through. Ultimately, he'll become a general by only one vote in the, um, in the Senate. So it's not an easy road for him. Was he a crook? I mean, you refer to him as a, a lawyer of questionable practices, I, I think. I think, um, used. yeah, I mean... Sure, by our standards, maybe you would say, yeah, because you know, uh, he, you know, he's got, he's got in his, he's got in his background, he's got allegations of embezzlement, um, you know, obtaining money under false pretenses. Uh, before he'd gotten married, he was well known to cavort with a uh, uh, kind of a notorious prostitute in New York City by the name of Fanny White, who he introduced uh, to the Queen. Supposedly, that's that's one of the great Sickles urban legends that they um, that he, they they got introduced to the Queen. But and then there was perhaps some allegations that um, um, he was kind of um, um, taking in money for her services. Um, you know, so so from that point of view, I guess I would have to say, yeah, we would probably consider him a crook. So when he showed up uh, to the army saying, I have this, these, all these troops make me an officer, what did he know about being an officer? Well, that's the problem. Probably not much. He, um, and again, and that's not, necessarily, that's not necessarily unique to the Civil War. Uh, but in his case, you know, he didn't have any military training. He, had, he did have some militia service, you know, in the, in the pre-war days, like a lot of prominent men of the era, you know, he did, he did kind of sign up for his local militia, but what did that really mean? Okay, you impress the ladies with your uniform and your big sword, and you go out on parade on Sunday afternoon, um, and maybe you drill. So, so from, from the point of view of, you know, warfare and tactics and strategy, when the war began, Sickles, like a lot of these other guys, was really unprepared for, you know, what he was going to find himself into.
How did he get along with the other officers, the West Point officers and the, the real army officers? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a, big, that's a big theme of my book is kind of the clique in the Army of the Potomac, which was the Union Army, but the cliques in the Army between, you know, what, what we refer to today as kind of the professionals, the West Pointers, and, you know, the amateurs, or in Sickles' case, the political generals. There was definitely a gulf between these guys. You know, from the, um, from the point of view of the West Pointers, they're looking at, you know, they've been training for the military their whole life. You know, they probably spent, you know, boring decades serving out on the frontier. And all of a sudden you have this, you know, acquitted murderer, ex-congressman coming in and you're the same rank, right? I mean, obviously there was, you know, you know, one thing that hasn't changed then is now we don't like politicians messing with our affairs. So there was definitely a lot of resentment against Sickles because of that. But on the other side of the house, Sickles and some of his friends, you know, to them, they, they viewed the West Pointers as being unaggressive and unassertive. And, there, you know, there's some quotes in there, you know, where they call these guys the engineer clique. You know, the West Point curriculum, it really focused on building field fortifications and stuff like that. And to a lot of these amateurs and to a lot of people, you know, in the newspapers and Congress, you know, they're kind of looking at these West Pointers as not being aggressive enough and not pursuing the war aggressively. Now, I'm not saying we want Congress and the newspapers to fight our wars for us, because of course we don't, but that hopefully gives you an idea of, you know, kind of the gulf between these, um, these two sides. Did he keep his relationship going with Abraham Lincoln throughout the war? I mean, did people know, oh yeah, you can't touch Sickles because he's Lincoln's buddy? Yeah, in, in a lot of ways, and I, I use a couple of quotes in the book where you have, you have people in the Army um, watching, you know, with disgust as Sickles can apparently go to Washington and call on the Lincolns at all hours, because one of the things that happens is not only does he remain in good standing with Abraham Lincoln, but he becomes very friendly with Mary Todd Lincoln. So, and there's a number of instances, you know, where they're going out to matinees together. Um, you know, he's at the White House for dinner and, and that sort of thing. And yeah, there was, you know, and the guys like Frank Haskell just in the army, just watching in disgust, you know, as, as this seems to be allowed to happen. Did he ever go over his supervisor's head to uh to Lincoln? Oh yeah, oh yeah, sure. There's um, there's a number of instances, you know, prior to Gettysburg, um, when he's serving under Joe Hooker and some of those guys, but especially then, you know, kind of after after Gettysburg, when you know technically he's still in the army, but you know he's he's calling on Lincoln and kind of talking to Lincoln, you know, about what he's you know perceives to be General Meade's shortcomings um, and that sort of thing. And again, you know, one of the things that's interesting about the Civil War is again that was not unique to Sickles by any stretch of the imagination, but there was a political process in place that, yeah, he certainly milked and, you know, took advantage of for all it was worth. Who are his allies in the Army? Well, his biggest ally is a, a general by the name of Joe Hooker. So Joe Hooker was a West Pointer, and prior to Gettysburg, you know, in 1862-ish, um, uh, Sickles served under Hooker's command. Now, even though Hooker is a West Pointer, Hooker, um, um, he's a very... Uh, ambitious, uh, kind of a conniving sort of guy, uh, you know, on his own. He's, you know, looking for opportunities to kind of rise through the ranks. And, you know, sometimes that means you got to knock other people down. But at a social level, Hooker is a, you know, he's a well-known drinker, although I don't, I do, you know, I want to emphasize, I don't think he's, um, you know, drinking really interferes with his army duties with the Army of the Potomac. But nevertheless, in social settings, he's known, well-known as a drinker. He's also well-known as a, uh, a heavy womanizer. 
So you have Hooker the Drinker and the Womanizer. He now hooks up with Sickles, who, although I don't think Sickles was a heavy drinker, Sickles is obviously a well-known womanizer. And then they hook up with the third guy, a guy from New York by the name of Dan Butterfield. Now, Butterfield, you know, probably likes women as much as the rest of them. Butterfield also had arson in his background. Okay, so for the scorecard here, we got, we got womanizing, murdering, drinking, and arson. And these three guys are kind of um, setting the social calendar in the Army of the Potomac in the months leading up to Gettysburg. Sickles was a drinker? No, I don't. Th I, I, yes and no. I mean, again, I think from from the notes that I saw, um, what they basically said was, you know, that he would he would enjoy himself on social occasions, uh, but that in general, in general, he was not what you would consider a heavy drinker. And one of his chaplains um, actually said that Sickles actually really frowned upon, you know, getting getting too drunk. So I don't. I think Sickles, you know, would like to party in the modern vernacular, but I wouldn't consider him a heavy drinker. Oh, toward the end of your book, you describe a scene in. Atlanta well after the war that, right. that Sickles and General Longstreet, generals from the opposite sides, are drunk stumbling down the street in Atlanta. Yeah, you know, that whole thing, that whole thing between Sickles and Longstreet was one of the, um, one of the, you know, one of the many aspects of the Sickles story that I found interesting because, you know, Sickles and Longstreet, they're two controversial guys because of their roles at the Battle of Gettysburg and, and at various points in the Civil War. But yeah, so one of the stories that we, that we tell in the book is, you know, they became friends after the war because they could both kind of mutually support each other. You know, if you criticized Longstreet, Sickles could kind of come in and, and defend Longstreet. And then if you criticized Sickles, you know, Longstreet could kind of come in and defend Sickles. But yeah, there was a story with St. Patrick's Day in the early 1890s on the um, streets of Atlanta. They were kind of going back and forth. They, they'd been at the St. Patrick's Day party um, and Sickles had, you know, gotten Longstreet so drunk that he got Longstreet to sing the Star Spangled Banner to this audience of old Confederate veterans. Then afterwards, they're walking each other back at, back and forth to their hotel neither one wants to kind of leave the other one and sickle you know a drunken sickles supposedly says something to the effect of you know Longstreet you know I guess I'm gonna have to forgive you for shooting one of my legs off and Longstreet says something like forgive me you ought to thank me for leaving you one leg to stand on so you know there were a lot of a lot of anecdotes like that in the book you know trying to get a feel for uh, you know what these two guys were doing you know after the war you know defending each other what would you give to have heard a conversation between those two well, yeah, I mean, I guess like Sickles, maybe I would have given my right leg, but <laughs> probably not that, not that extreme. But um, so uh, the Civil War starts, and his uh, his unit is activated. Where do they start? Yeah. Where do they see their first first fighting? Well, they um, um, so they get a, they get activated shortly after the first Battle of Bull Run. Um, for the most part. Sickles himself starts to see action in the um, in the Seven Days Battles, but what I what I what I focus on in the book is really from late 1861 through the end of 1862. You will see the Civil War battles progressively getting bigger and messier, um, and that you know the one the pre-Gettysburg battles that I specifically focus on in the book being um, um, Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville, these battles start getting bigger. And unfortunately, after the Seven Days Battle, Sickles goes to New York 
to recruit. And really, for the most part, for the late summer to early fall of 1862, when you have two large battles, Second Manassas and Antietam, Sickles is away from the Army recruiting. So his men are getting some fighting experience throughout 1862, but he's gone. And I think that's important because even though he's gone with his connections with Joe Hooker, Lincoln, and the newspapers, Sickles is going to leapfrog get himself promoted pretty quickly, you know, from what would be a brigade command to a division command and then ultimately to a corps command without seeing any combat experience in between. I think, and I, you can really only judge this on the seven days because that's all we have to work with, but I think my take on Sickles is he had the ability and the mental, you know, the street smarts to make himself a pretty good brigade commander. You did not need to have a West Point education to be successful in the Civil War. But, again, as I said, he leapfrogs from brigade to division to command when a little bit of training and a little bit of experience would have come in handy. And I think ultimately that's going to be his biggest military downfall. How big is a brigade and a division in a corps? Well, I mean, it depends. I mean, I mean, you know, sort of some round numbers. Let's say at the time of Gettysburg, you know, a brigade might be roughly 1,500 men. Um, you know, let's say a division is, is you know, four to 5,000 men. Um, at the Battle of Gettysburg, the, the third corps, that Sickles commands is about 11,000 men, some corps are bigger than that, but you know that kind of gives you an idea of the numbers we're talking about. How did he handle himself when he was under fire? Uh, from, according to him, very well. I mean, from real bullets, <laughs> yeah, not yeah, political yeah, fire. Yeah, exactly. If, um, um, he says that he, he actually, I have actually have an account in there where he talks about the first time that he was under fire and he emphasizes how coolly he, um, he kind of reacted to it. Well, okay, you know, but what did other people say? Most of the other accounts that we seem to have seem to, for the most part, never question his bravery, never question his aggressiveness. And aggressiveness can be a good thing or a bad thing if you're too aggressive in the wrong situation. But he seems to react under fire with, for the most part, coolness and aggressive, you know, aggressive action, aggressive decision making. What are his recollections of his performance like? Well, depending on Obviously, you can imagine his recollections are very favorable. He, um, um, a number of quotes that I, get, that I talk about in there, especially through the 1880s and the 1890s, when he was coming back to Gettysburg and you know, giving speeches and being asked these sorts of questions. General Sickles, what do you think of your performance at Gettysburg? And he would repeatedly say, and this is one of the things you know, I personally like about him, how, you know, how dogged he is and stubborn. You know, he would say, you know what, I've, I've reviewed this battle. You know, I've had decades to review what I did at this battle. The people who criticize me don't know what they're talking about. I was happy with the part I played, and I would do today, you know, exactly what I did back then. So he never, you know, he never once apologized for, uh, for what he did. And other people call his recollections outright lies. Yeah, yeah. And there's, there's where especially the lies come in is when you start talking about what he did at Gettysburg. And you know, there's this, so there's this whole debate on the morning of July 2nd, the second day of the battle. Um, he decides to either misinterpret General Meade's orders or, some, or his critics think intentionally disobey General Meade's orders. But he does all this and he moves essentially out of position as much as say three quarters of a mile out of position so that when the fighting begins on July 2nd, General Meade and the Union Army's entire left flank is out of position. 
in, in having to defend himself against criticism from that in later years, you know, one of the key things he had done, for example, was he had left Little Round Top, which, you know, today at least is acknowledged as, you know, the key to the left flank of the Union Army. We could have a whole other debate about that. But, you know, in trying to address criticism of that, he would have to resort to lies and say things like, you know, what are you talking about? I, I occupied Little Round Top. I made sure we got reinforcements up there. And he had to do a lot of things like that to, uh, you know, kind of put the uh, put the spin on his uh, his Gettysburg performance. You know, backing up a little bit to just before the battle, uh, you say in your book that he, on his own volition, took his army to Gettysburg. They were what, at Emmitsburg. Well, yeah. So, so on July first, you know, the first day of the battle, he is he is at Emmitsburg. At that point in the battle, General Meade is still, you know, in the process of concentrating the Union Army and still trying to figure out where the Union Army is going to fight. At that part, at that point of the game, it is not, you know, there's no guarantee that we're ultimately going to concentrate and have this huge battle at, at Gettysburg. So Sickles, on the 1st of July, is positioned at Emmitsburg, probably to guard a potential move around the Union left flank. If Lee, if Lee and the Confederates who were to the west had kind of swept maybe further south, they could have potentially outflanked the Union Army at Emmitsburg and kind of cut through there. So the bottom line is Sickles is guarding what could be a key position at Emmitsburg. How far is Emmitsburg from Gettysburg? Oh, I don't know, 10, 10 12 miles or so. So they, um, so as they get in there, as they get in there um, into Emmitsburg, Sickles starts receiving orders from General John Reynolds, who is moved forward to Gettysburg and is basically in action. Reynolds is telling Sickles, I think you better come forward. So Sickles becomes very confused. Does he stay at Emmitsburg, where he thinks General Meade wants him to be? Does he move forward to Gettysburg, you know, where you think General Reynolds wants him to be? He's going to spend the first day, a good portion of the first day of the battle, agonizing over this. Ultimately, he will move forward to Gettysburg, and a favorite spin topic of his later will be that he'll tell people, I marched to the sound of the guns, I moved forward to Gettysburg, I did the right thing in disobedience to General Meade, who wanted me to stay back on a line in the rear. So it's a way Sickles could spin the story to make himself look aggressive and make General Meade look, you know, kind of timid and indecisive at the same time. Was there real confusion at the top, and was he getting uh, conflicting orders, or, or was he just a troublemaker? I think, you know, this is an area where people would disagree with me. Um, and I think, and hopefully people who've read the book and are watching, um, you know, will appreciate that I've gone to great pains in the book to not quote unquote take a side. Um, you know, because when, when this book was announced, you know, you know, a lot of people hate Sickles because of the type of guy he is and stuff that he did. And I think when this book was announced, there was a lot of great skepticism that I was going to kind of just, you know, print this apology for Sickles and defend everything he did. And I don't do that in the book. Having said that, I think in answer to this specific question, yeah, I think, I think you can make a case that there is legitimate confusion. At the end of the day, he's getting orders from multiple people. You know, and if, I think anybody, regardless of whether you've ever been to West Point or in the Army, anybody who works in an organization today can relate to that. If you're getting, you know, instructions from two bosses, it can become very confusing if the two of them are telling you, um, you know, different things to do. So, yes, I think the confusion was legitimate. The Sickles critics out there, and there are legions of them, the Sickles critics out there would disagree with me and say, no, he's a troublemaker, it should have been clear. But, you know, I think you have to remove a lot of hindsight from the decision-making. You know, we've had 140-odd years to study the battle. 
if you just limit yourself to what was happening at the time and the conflicting instructions he was getting, absolutely, I think, you know, some of the confusion was justified. Did you have a favorable or unfavorable opinion of Sickles before you started this book? Well, I wasn't sure, and that, that was one of the reasons why I wrote the book. Um, you know, favorable, unfavorable, I certainly found him interesting. You know, again, you know, the murderer who rises to high command in the army and then sets off this great controversy. You know, to me, I mean, that's a no-brainer as far as finding him interesting. Um, I, you know, the standard, the standard dogma on the Battle of Gettysburg is, is that he made a mistake and that he was wrong. Uh, so, and I, you know, and I'd pretty much fallen into line with, with that argument. But as, as a person, you know, do I find favorable or unfavorable? Again, it's mixed. There, there's qualities of him that I really like his stubbornness, um, you know, I like his ambition. You know, one of the things I point out in the book is he gets knocked down and you think he's kind of left for dead at a number of points in his career. And he always kind of moves the chess pieces on the board, you know, to, to, to kind of get himself back up on his feet again. I like that. You know, people may not like that, but I, I like that. So there's a number of aspects of his personality um, that I do find favorable. On the other side of the ledger, you know, I think more than anything today, people hate him for the post-war attacks that he made on General Meade's reputation. You know, Meade is generally viewed today as a good, solid guy. And, you know, you have kind of Sickles, this political monster, this windbag, this, you know, fetid gas, this murderer, you know, kind of seemingly lying his way through the historical record to, to kind of beat up on Meade's reputation. So that's the other side of the ledger. Why didn't he and Meade get along? Uh, two very different guys. You know, I touched on I touched on kind of the uh, the Sickles partying aspects earlier on. Uh, you know, I think Meade is very much the opposite of that. Um, you know, Meade is more the conservative, happily married um, kind of guy. So I think to start with, they're two very different guys. Then you have this whole gulf, Meade the West Pointer, Sickles the political general. Um, and then if that weren't, weren't bad enough, after the Battle of Chancellorsville, there is a, you know, a direct dispute where um, Sickles' buddy Joe Hooker gets into a, a dispute with Meade over you know, whether or not they should have retreated after Chancellorsville. Sickles falls into line with Hooker and against Meade. And then last but not least, Meade had had some personality conflicts with one of um, um, Sickles' friends in the Third Corps, a guy by the name of General David Burney. So you put all that together and it's kind of just a disaster waiting to happen. You mentioned that you're a, a guide at Gettysburg. Yes. Is it full time, part time, hobby? Uh, part time. I, so I'm employed. Um, I'm employed full time in a, a, another world, kind of the banking and financial industry. You know, which is kind of a dirty word to a lot of people in of itself today. But um, but but so I do that full time, and I've been a, um, a part time guide at Gettysburg since 2003, and I do that on weekends and you know throughout the uh, the spring, summer, and fall. How do people employ your services? How do they find you? Well, what happens is, so, so there's a licensed battlefield guide program at Gettysburg where we're, we're, in essence, contractors through the National Park Service. And what people do is if you come to Gettysburg, you know, with your family, we really feel the best way to see the battlefield is to take a tour, hire a licensed battlefield guide, and we will go in the car with you and show you around the battlefield and answer your questions and, you know, tell you stories for two hours. What do you have to do to get a license? Well, what the Park Service does is, you know, the Park Service is very, um, you know, regiment. They, they want to make sure that obviously people that come here are getting factual information and that they're dealing with, you know, guides who can who can communicate the facts of the battle. So the Park Service holds, you know, it's a pretty tough 
written and oral examination process every couple of years. So you take a comprehensive written exam, not only on the Battle of Gettysburg, but the history of Gettysburg and the Civil War itself. For those of us then who pass the written exam, then you go on to this oral exam where you get in the car with a couple of park rangers and they beat you up basically for a couple of hours to you know see how well you can uh, you can handle it. And then if you get through all that, you know. Is it a tough test? Uh, yeah, it is. It is. You know, a lot of people, it's fun. It's, it's kind of funny to watch, but especially when you get to the oral part of it, you know, you'll actually see people get so stressed out by that part of the exam that they'll actually drop out. You know, they'll throw their years of studying out the window, um, you know, kind of because they can't, you know, they can't handle the stress of doing it. So it can be a very tough exam. Um, you know, my advice to people is I always tell them, okay, take a deep breath. We're not curing cancer. You know, just take a deep breath. You know, we're battlefield guides. Have fun with it. Um, try to tell a good story, try to be factually accurate, um, and, you know, just have fun and go with it. But, how, how did you study for it? Uh, mostly just reading. You know, you read and, um, um, uh, you know, they offer some various prep classes of that sort of thing. But you're reading, basically, you meet up with other people who kind of have similar interests and you bounce questions off of each other and you walk the battlefield together and you kind of try out your tours on each other um, and that sort of thing. And that's that's been one of the best parts of the experience is kind of meeting. You get to meet a lot of people who, you know, would have a similar interest to you because obviously, you know, that level of Gettysburg knowledge is not something you're just going to find in everyday life, you know, while you're standing at the supermarket or something. What made you want to focus so much attention on Gettysburg in particular? Well, um, you know, I was, I'd been a, um, I'd been a Gettysburg enthusiast, I guess I would say, since probably probably the early 90s. I mean, it's hard to say now. It's hard to imagine now, but I guess it's been almost 15, 20 years. You know, and I don't feel that old. But um, uh, one year for Christmas, somebody had given me the book, The Killer Angels, which is probably all of us know is a, a well-known Civil War novel. Somebody had given me that one year for Christmas, and, you know, I became kind of hooked and fascinated by the Gettysburg story and and people criticize something like the Killer Angels because it's only a novel but you know it did encourage me to kind of want to learn the true story and to, to learn more about it so you just kept reading books and and that sort of thing and I'd gotten in you know like a lot of middle managers in my banking and financial gig I had um, uh, gotten relocated around the country on a number of different occasions and my wife and I kind of always had our eye open for uh, an opportunity to, to move to Gettysburg and about 10 years ago I, uh, I found a job opportunity that allowed us to do that. Is this your first book? Yes it is. I've done a few um, prior magazine articles but that's the uh, first book. Well we're about two-thirds of the way through this and okay. your book is entitled Sickles at Gettysburg and we barely talked about Sickles at Gettysburg so can you paint the picture on was it July 2nd? And yeah. he's at Little Round Top? Well, so July 2nd, which again is the second day of the battle. So on the first day of the battle, the Union Army has been defeated, and they're kind of retrenching on Cemetery Ridge. As fate would have it, on the morning of the 2nd, Sickles and his 3rd Army Corps, which is again about 11,000 men, are on what is essentially going to be the left flank, the left end of the Union battle line. So General George Meade, commanding the Union Army that morning, tells Sickles to basically hold the flank and put your, basically put your, your flank and your line on that hill way down at the end of the line that we know today is Little Round Top. Okay, so that's kind of where the story starts at Gettysburg. Sickles, though, in kind of getting into that position, tells a couple of stories, and this is where you got to kind of, again, decide which one you believe. 
He says he's not sure where he's supposed to go, and he doesn't like where he's supposed to go. He sees a position that's, again, about three-quarters of a mile out in front of the main union line. Sickles sees that, decides that's a better position to put his third core in. And although, and again, I don't think his critics give him credit for this, I think he does try to communicate some of his issues back to headquarters into General Meade, but ultimately throughout the course of the early afternoon, Sickles will move his third corps forward, put the entire left flank of the Union Army out of position so that when General Lee and General Longstreet's Confederate attack begins in the afternoon, Meade has got big problems because his left flank is out of position and he's got to scramble to, to reinforce it. So the, the Peach Orchard is a battle that Meade didn't expect to have happen? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, if you, if you kind of look at Sickles' positioning during the course of the battle, three, you know, three very famous place names that exist today, Devil's Den, the Weed Field, and the Peach Orchard, all really exist because Sickles moved out of position. Meade did not intend to have any troops in those areas. Sickles had other ideas so that when the Confederate attack, you know, you know, kind of hits Sickles' line in those three places, you know, they were they were areas that no Meade did not expect to uh, to have his troops in. They were areas then that Meade did not expect to have to defend. Well, Little Roundtop is up high and the Peach Orchard is down lower. What what was the advantage that Sickles saw in being down lower? Well, that's a good question. So, <laughs> and that's one of the things that people have been debating about for all these decades. The issue is kind of. It's high and low, but it's also the difference between between being back and moving forward. So the Peach Orchard does sit on an elevation today along the Emmitsburg Road. Now, it's not nearly as high as Little Round Top, but it is an elevation in of itself. One of the things we debate is we think, you know, Sickles wanted to move forward to the Peach Orchard. He said one of the things he wanted to do was give more room for his artillery to maneuver because in the initial position that Meade wanted him to be in, Sickles and his artillery officers said they didn't have enough room basically to effectively use their artillery. So Sickles thought by moving forward, he would basically kind of um, um, get more room to move his troops and his artillery, kind of get out in front of the line and get a better view of the Confederate attack as it was forming. So those are kinds of the types of things that Sickles is saying, you know, are, are, are why he, uh, he moved out of position. Again, to your earlier question, there's people watching at home tonight who are gonna say, oh, that's all nonsense. Sickles is a troublemaker and he's just looking to create trouble. I, you know, obviously I can't prove that, but I don't, you know, I don't think that's the case. How fast could he move 10,000, 11,000 Well, you know, it's, it's, it takes place over a couple of hours. Um, you know, so over the course of, let's say, roughly 1 o'clock in the afternoon to, to nearly 3, 3.30 in the afternoon on July 2nd. You know, those are rough times. Of course, we don't know the exact. But, you know, it, he's in the process of moving, moving his corps forward. And other guys in the Army are supposedly watching, you know, the entire left flank move out of position and are really kind of bewildered and saying, you know, what, you know, what on earth is Sickles and the... What are, what are those guys doing? Um, unfortunately, Meade doesn't seem to find out about it until about 3 o'clock in the afternoon when his chief engineer basically comes up to headquarters and tells him that, you know, hey, you better go take a look. You know, we got, we got problems down on the Third Corps front. Well, now, in, in the Killer Angels book yeah. and in the movie Gettysburg, the, the dramatic scene is the main, the, what was the number the of 20th the 20th main? main. 20th main, yes. valiantly defending... Little Round Top, how did they get there? And 
Well, that's that's where the Confederates come from to attack them. Yeah, that's one of the things. That's one of the things I always like to remind uh, 20th Maine fans. You know, you wouldn't have Chamberlain in the 20th Maine come into the rescue at the last minute if it weren't for Dan Sickles. So, you know, if you're a Chamberlain fan, you at least know Sickles that. But I mean, basically, what had happened? So, you know, Little Round Top is is essentially unoccupied of of infantry. Meade finds out about it, now has to start scrambling to get reinforcements up on the hill. So as they're kind of sending out couriers throughout the Union lines to get people up to reinforce the left flank, one of the, um, one of the messages falls in the hands of a, a guy from Erie, Pennsylvania, a colonel by the name of Strong Vincent. Serving under Strong Vincent is Joshua Chamberlain in the 20th Maine. Vincent puts his troops up on Little Round Top. The 20th Maine basically ends up being the left end of the line, kind of holding the, um, the, end, of, uh, the end of the hill. As the Confederates, are, as Longstreet's Confederates are breaking through Sickles' battle line, they basically outflank Sickles at Devil's Den and basically start to work their way up Big Round Top and then ultimately over to, um, to Little Round Top. Chamberlain, among many other units, has to defend the hill. And, you know, if we've seen the movie, you know, the rest is, you know, more or less history. And what happened to Sickles when he got his soldiers down to to uh, the peach orchard. Well, I think they um, they fought as valiantly as they could. I think the um, the ultimate, and again, this is the thing that you know Gettysburg enthusiasts like to debate over. You know the strengths and the weaknesses of Sickles' position. I think, in my mind, the ultimate weakness of Sickles' position is he moves into a line that's too long for his troops to hold. He doesn't have enough men to hold it. So what happens is as the Confederates are slamming into him, basically I think his men do some valiant fighting. I think they do about the best they can with it. But ultimately, his entire line is crushed by, um, by General Longstreet's troops. So his men fall back, again, from Devil's Den, the wheat field, and the peach orchard. They're going to fall back. And the Confederates are going to kind of steamroll then, but... But, you know, the Confederates, if you can say something in his favor, in, in Sickles' favor, the Confederates do suffer heavy casualties capturing these positions from Sickles. These positions are ultimately going to hold no value to the Confederates and ultimately winning the Battle of Gettysburg. So, again, these are, you know, kinds of the who was right and who was wrong, uh, you know, sort of debates. Did, did Sickles exercise poor generalship in the way he set up his troops when he got to to, uh, yeah, Hunter? you know, there's a quote. There's a quote in there, and I forget, I forget who said it. You know that a good, a good leader, a good leader, you know, has to, a good military leader has to kind of show aggressive temperament, but he also has to show sound judgment. And Sickles is, you know, certainly guilty in a good way, I think, of aggressive temperament. You know, he wants to get out there and he wants to, he wants to fight the rebels, but um, ultimately the judgment is certainly questionable. Again, with the defects of the position, he moves out. Um, you know, he doesn't really give the Union Army, the rest of the Union Army, an opportunity to kind of coordinate and reinforce them until it's nearly too late. But you also say in the book that ultimately he outguessed Lee in, in where Lee was going to strike and Longstreet said, where that, that he would rather, something to the effect that he would rather uh, Sickles' troops not have been where they were. Yeah, that's right. So um, one, of, one, of the points, one of the points we make in the book is if you look at Robert E. Lee's objectives for the second day at Gettysburg, Lee and Longstreet clearly seem to be saying that one of the points they want to capture is the Peach Orchard because it is an ar elevated artillery platform along the Emmitsburg Road. They can get their cannons up there and supposedly, you know, hit Cemetery Ridge. 
So that seems to be one of the objectives in the attack. Sickles, and some people think, you know, he does a good job of outguessing Lee. Other people think Sickles is just plain lucky. Other people think Sickles is just making it all up later. But right, you know, luck or not, Sickles does at least move forward into the peach orchard, take this position that Longstreet was expecting to occupy. Now Longstreet's going to have to fight his way through it, you know, and, and again, suffer heavier casualties in the process. But again, Depending on where you kind of fall in the Sickles story, he either successfully outguessed Lee or he was just plain lucky in doing that. So they retreated from Peach Orchard? Ultimately, they do. Ultimately, he's driven out of the Peach Orchard. The Confederates, Longstreet's troops, will take and hold the Peach Orchard for the remainder of the 2nd and also in through most of the 3rd. So when they launch Pickett's Charge on July 3rd, they actually are using the Peach Orchard as an artillery platform to hit the Union lines, but ultimately to no benefit you know, in driving the Union Army um, out of their main position on Cemetery Ridge. And Sickles is wounded? Yes, Sickles is wounded. So during the uh, early evening of July 2nd, while he's rallying the troops, a um, artillery shell comes, smashes into his leg. He's carried off the field, and um, that night at a field hospital, his leg is amputated, effectively ending his military career. You say legend tells us that in one last act of bravado, Sickles was escorted from the field while the theatrically chomping on a cigar and inspiring his men to hold their ground. Yeah, that's the legend. So, so one of the one of the great urban legends associated with Sickles is yeah, there's this image that is he's badly wounded. You know, he wants to kind of steady the men and have them keep fighting. And one of the great images associated with Sickles in the second day of Gettysburg was always the story of him kind of going off, smoking his cigar, and you know, telling the guys, "Hey, I'm all right." keep fighting, you know, you know, it's not so bad. So I thought, so when I started out in my research, you know, I thought like a lot of people, that was kind of a cool and an interesting story. All I really wanted to do was collect some primary accounts and try to write a good version of that. Because again, if you go back to some of the books that had been previously published, a lot of them were kind of telling that story using secondhand accounts and, and that sort of thing. So I kind of just wanted to get back to basics. The problem was, was that whenever I looked at, you know, primary accounts of that story, you know, they didn't really talk about the cigar and coolly smoking and that. They talked about, you know, him being badly wounded. Um, there's one account that says, you know, don't, he's, he's telling him, don't let me get taken prisoner and tie up my leg before I bleed to death. Um, and, you know, another one of his staff officers comes and says, we're just basically doping him up and pumping him full of stimulants so people didn't talk about the cigar story. So ultimately what I ended up writing in the book was very different from kind of the traditional version of that. But I didn't, I didn't start out intending for it to be that way, but you gotta just you know, kind of go where you think your research takes you. You said the in injury uh, effectively ended his military career, but you have a photograph in here of him with one leg in uniform surrounded by other officers. Well, yeah, so um, uh, the loss of his leg the loss of his leg does effectively end his battlefield career. Um, what happens is he will spend the next couple of months recuperating. In October of 1863, he will make an effort to rejoin the Army. General Meade, who again, you know, probably hates his guts, is probably ticked off over what happens at Gettysburg. Meade kind of, you know, uses the missing leg as an excuse and tells Sickles, well, you know, I don't really think you're fit for service and doesn't really let Sickles come back into the Army. So the battlefield end of his career is done. But one of the interesting things about Sickles, though, is from really from July 2nd, 1863, until the end of his life, Sickles is again kind of re-spin himself as this one-legged war hero, this, this, this military man, this military veteran, you know, attending, you know, dedications and reunions as, you know, kind of the hero of Gettysburg. I want to read you this part about a time when uh, 
Sickles met Mark Twain, and yeah. they spent an, an evening talking, and Twain said, I noticed then that the general valued his lost leg away and above the one that is left. I am perfectly sure that if he had to part with either of them, he would part with the one that he has got. Yeah, I think that sums it up. I love that quote. Um, I mean, I think it it sums it up. You know, it's it's interesting to note that Sickles did apparently learn to use an artificial leg. You never see him using it in photos. It's always, you know, one leg in the crutches. And when you look at his, you know, his mo whether it be a monument dedication speech or a newspaper interview, he's always talking about, you know, look at the sacrifice I made. Look at the sacrifice I made for the country and for the Union and for Gettysburg um, and that sort of thing. So I, th I think I, I like Twain's quote because I think it sums it up pretty accurately. And you have a photograph in the book of his leg bone? Yeah, people love that photo. If is it I'm on a, display? It yeah. is. It is. It's, you know, it's been at Walter Reed in, in Washington for a number of decades. That's a great photo. You know, if I'm at a book signing or something and somebody's kind of on the fence about whether or not they want to buy the book they start talking they always ask about the leg if I turn to that photo they see the leg and, and and they're hooked you know there's something there's something about that leg and and it was on display at a museum and one of the again the urban legends are that he would go and visit the leg for whatever reason people seem to love that story now uh, there was a lot of finger pointing involved after the Battle of Gettysburg yeah. where uh, Sickles said that he thought Meade didn't intend to fight Gettysburg or plan to retreat. Well, I, I, oh, you call it the Second Battle of Gettysburg. Right. Who won that one? Well, I think, I think historically General Meade has clearly won the Second Battle of Gettysburg. Um, you can, you can kind of debate over at the time, I don't really think there were any winners. Sickles didn't get what he wanted. Sickles, more than anything, wanted to come back to the Army, and he never got that, so he certainly didn't win it. Um, General Meade, you know, you know Meade's, Meade's name and reputation got dragged through the mud, and at the time, it, it caused Meade a lot of job stress and, you know, personal stress. But, you know, fast-forwarding, you know, 140-odd years later, um, clearly, clearly Meade won, historically Meade won the Second Battle of Gettysburg. You know, 99% of Civil War and Gettysburg enthusiasts today, if they were to take a side, would, would take Meade's side. And he clearly, he clearly won that battle. Sickles was, was around for a long time after the Battle of Gettysburg. Yeah, he um, he um, um, he attended. You know, he attended right up through the fiftieth anniversary of the battle in July nineteen thirteen, and died a few months after that. But he um, he was around for a long time, and that was a great opportunity to, for him because he just kept coming back to battlefields. You know, Gettysburg in particular, but other battlefields. And he just you know gave him an opportunity to just keep telling and telling and telling that story. You know that he was the hero. You know, Meade wanted to retreat. He moved forward to prevent Meade from retreating and just re-spinning that, you know, for, you know, audiences for decades. So he really used that to his advantage and became really a celebrity because of that in his own right. I mean, as you quote, as you pointed out, Mark Twain, Mark Twain, you know, was a pretty famous guy too, right? Mark Twain devoted a large portion of his memoirs to meeting Dan Sickles. I mean, that tells you to me how famous Sickles was. How much of his time did he spend on battlefield preservation? Well, I think... Um, I think as far as Gettysburg is concerned, at least quite a bit. Um, so in the 1880s, he became chairman of the New York Monuments Commission, and their role was to, um, um, to kind of mark uh, the battle lines uh, and, you know, kind of place the monuments to New York troops um, on the battlefield at Gettysburg. And he was very committed and very devoted to that. And you, you, numerous accounts, you keep seeing him coming back to Gettysburg, you know, to, to try to participate in that. So I think he was very, very active in that role. And then the other piece that I talk about in the book is, of course, in the, um, um, you know, in the early 1880s, 
1990s, you know, the Gettysburg battlefield has been under the threat of, you know, various aspects of commercial development. You use the phrase that uh, there was a threat of blasting Devil's Den to make way for a trolley track. Yeah, yeah, as, as, most, as most Gettysburg enthusiasts know, um, there was a trolley line that kind of ran over much of um, Sickles' battle line. And, um, you know, one of the areas that it ran through was Devil's Den. To go through that area, they had to blast a number of rocks. And Sickles and a lot of the Third Corps veterans, you know, were particularly um, upset by that. Um, and, you know, so, so that was the sort of thing that Sickles really was committed to kind of fighting against. And, you know, ultimately that was one of the reasons why, as a congressman, he introduced the legislation that, that created um, Gettysburg National Military Park. And I find it, you know, and I find it a little ironic today. I think at the end of his life, Sickles did some really good things for the Gettysburg battlefield. But the Gettysburg enthusiasts today, you know, people who come back to that battlefield and love going there, and in some cases, you know, actually owe their living to the Gettysburg battlefield, you know, a lot of times people don't want to give, at least if nothing else, give them his due for that. Um, and this is an era, area of the Sickles story that, you know, I thought I focused on much more than some of the prior biographies because I thought in particular they had, they had kind of overlooked that. Although you do say he was accused of raking off some money from the New York Monument Fund. Well, yeah, with Sickles it's never easy. Oh, is it? Rascal to the end. <laughs> exactly. Right to the end he's going to give you a hard time. He, um, so what happened was shortly before the, um, the 50th anniversary of the battle, New York State did an audit of the Monuments Commission's books, and they found something to the effect of $28,000 unaccounted for. Chairman Sickles couldn't, um, couldn't figure out where the money was, and while all this was going on, Sickles was going through a very messy public uh, sort of scandal with his second wife. Um, she was trying to get his housekeeper kicked out of the house. Um, there was all, he was going bankrupt. There was no, you know, foreclosure. It was just a really messy story. And then on top of all this, he had this money missing from the New York Monuments Commission. So yeah, he was uh, he was a problem child right to the uh, right to the bitter end. How long did he live? Well, he died. Um, he died shortly after the um, um, the 50th anniversary of the battle, 1914. And and um, depending on, there's some debate over when he was born. So depending on where you want to go, he was somewhere in the age vicinity of 91 to 95 years old. And so. buried, buried in Arlington National Cemetery, which um, I think is kind of kind of ironic because you know he's disparaged today by a lot of people as not being you know a real soldier, the political general, and yet you know yet he rests in. Arlington National Cemetery today. There are there are efforts, you know, from time to time to try to get him reburied at Gettysburg. There's um, um, a number of enthusiasts of his who would like to see that happen. Uh, but you know, at least with the evidence that stands today, you know, he's probably going to rest in Arlington. If you could talk to him, what would you ask him? Boy, um, good question. Um, well, I think like all of us, probably the million dollar question was you'd go back to the morning of. July 2nd, 1816, you say, Dan, what were you thinking? You know, just, and tell me the truth. Don't lie to me. Tell me the truth. What were you thinking? Um, I think if I only had one question, that would probably be it. We've been talking with James Hessler. He is the author of this book, Sickles at Gettysburg. James Hessler, thank you very much. Well, thank you. The time flew by, and uh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.